Hi, and welcome to EST. If you love the established church, this is the place to have conversations about why the established church matters, how to better serve her, and to hear stories every week about how God is using the church for His glory and our good. The show is hosted each week by Sam Rayner, the pastor of West Bradenton Baptist Church in Bradenton, Florida, Josh King, the pastor of Saxe's Church in Saxe, Texas, and me, Micah Fries, the pastor of Brainerd Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're glad you're here. Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of EST in the house with Sam and Josh, and uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. We're going to talk today about worship wars, which I assume is a reference to nerf battles among the staff down the hallways of the church. <laughs> I, you know, obviously, I'm kidding. We're talking about the, uh, the culture of sort of generational and cultural and methodological tensions that function within the church, particularly around music and preaching. And so we're going to kind of get into that today. Sam, you are, um, you know, you've researched this. You've looked at this quite a a bit throughout the years. Just talk to us a little bit. If you're going to define worship wars, what do we mean when we say the worship wars in the church? Yeah, well, a great question. Um, One, I, I live this every week, not because my church is at war with each other. That's not the case. We have actually a unified congregation, but we have four services all four of them different, um, three in English, one in Spanish, and the three in English are all three different styles. So I, it's, a, it's a rather uh, interesting setup, two, two worship pastors you know, that kind of share all of that. Um, so I, when I think of worship wars, I think of a church that is uh, completely derailed with this idea that I need to have my preferences in style, uh, whatever that may be. It can't. Music's the big one, but I need to have my preferences in style um, over any sort of uh, idea that I need to reach out beyond myself and and sacrifice for either other believers or the unsaved. And so when I think of when I think of worship wars, it's it's really a, a very selfish sort of uh, for, so, sort of mentality. Um, that that drives it. So I, I was going to sum it up in, in just a brief moment, which you can't. You can't. I mean, this is a, a very pretty complex broad conversation. Thing. I'm, I'm glad you said it's more than just music because I was thinking about this. The first worship war, so, so to speak, that I remember was a church that that we were at when I was younger. Of course, my dad was a pastor, and the war there was over. It was a little bitty, you know, rural uh, church, and uh, in the middle of the service, we would sing Happy Birthday to anyone who had a birthday that week. And they would, they would, we, that person would have to come to the front of the auditorium and the church would sing happy birthday to them in the middle of the service. And the first worship war I remember was literally a war over whether or not we would discontinue the practice of forcing people to come to the front of the auditorium so that the church could sing happy birthday to them in the middle of the service. So it really is broader than just music. I mean, it really does go to this issue of, um, uh, you know, our perspective on why we worship, who worship is for. And who has a right to determine what happens in the context of worship? All of those things dictate the form of worship that we experience. Josh, you are, you know, you're, you're in a, in fact, you were in the most monolithic sort of expression of worship, I would think, between the three of us. Because Sam says they have four different kinds of worship on campus. I know at our church, we have uh, two very distinct venues, both with distinct styles. And I actually do a wardrobe change halfway through the morning on Sundays. So I'm in a suit and tie for part of the morning, and then I come into my office and I completely change into tennis shoes and blue jeans and sometimes even a T-shirt and then go lead the other services. Whereas all of your services, at least the services that you lead, 
which is one service, right? You've got just one service, and it's the right. know, it's, it's a very specific style and, and mode of worship. So what do you think drives worship wars primarily? What is it that causes us or that gets us to being at war over the style of worship in the church? You know, I, I think Sam hit it on the on the head there. It's a preference of style, and style really is what because style encompasses the dress, the the style of preaching, the style of music, etc. Also, the questions that are there. I will also often I will also back up just a little bit here and add this to the conversation because I think there's some pastors, particularly some of our listeners, that may kind of find themselves in the same room I do. I'll be real honest with you. I could attend a church if I wasn't the pastor. I could pastor a church that doesn't have music. Like, I don't need music. Music doesn't – I'm not the kind of guy that always has my earbuds in. When I run, I'm listening to preaching. When I – you know, I can have music behind me, but I don't know who those artists are. I don't know the lyrics. I'm just just not a music guy. And so I can have that. Furthermore, I also hold – and I think this is one of the questions that you're going to have to eventually get into – I think that the culture of the community you're trying to reach is probably the bigger factor in what style of worship you use. Now, I have heard people make the argument that style has something to do with um let's uh, we could put it in history or tradition or even theology, and I'm not saying any of those poorly. I think they're they have some arguments on that side of it. But for instance, I'm in Texas and we have a dominant style to most of the popular music that's in this area. That's the way people communicate. It's abrasive to hear it differently, music differently. And so I, I kind of argue that way. And um, I do think it's kind of interesting that we're the only church. We, we don't even have the, uh, the multiple expressions. We're a First Baptist church. And um, so that's kind of, I think, a little bit odd that the First Baptist church in the room is not the one with multiple styles of worship and and those sort of things. We just, I heard a worship pastor say a long time ago, let's just decide who we are and then be that. And if people don't like it, they won't stay. And if they do, they, they'll stay. And so we took that route. Don't see anything wrong with the route you guys are taking. Um, and if we were larger, we'd probably add a traditional service uh, just because of the style. Yeah. And, and what, what happened at my church is, is I inherited it. So it's, it's one of those things, would you have done this on your own. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't really want to second guess people before me because many of the pastors you before me were factors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, well, they did. They did great jobs and the church is quite unified, mm-hmm. even though we do have multiple services and multiple styles. But the thing with the war side of this is, it, it, you know, it can occur over many different things. So we're not only talking about music style. That's a big one. That's the one that really, I think, gets people most stirred up. But you know, historically, this could have been just moving from one service to two service. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of churches that struggle with that. You can, you know, time of service is a big deal. I pastored a church where I tried to flip flop some times, and let me tell you, there was all we ended up not doing it because <laughs> there was almost an all-out war just over the time of service. I, or I day. Yeah, or, yeah, or the people yeah, that think I, Saturday is not a – you can't have church on Saturday. Yeah. I, I was wanting to move the time, and I, this part I did get accomplished from 10.55 to 11. And you would have thought that I was I was asking people to sacrifice their firstborn child over those over those five minutes, at least some of the people. Um, and style of dress as well. I mean if you – even the history of choir robes. I mean way back in the day, 100, 150 years ago, um, Baptist churches didn't have robes because that was too Catholic. And then all of a sudden, they had robes, 
because mm-hmm. that was the end thing to do because we want people to be uniform. And and then all of a sudden we don't have robes. And, and, and so we go through these cycles of times and styles and not just style of music but style of dress. I mean this really is something that's been going on for all of church history. Go all the way back to the beginning of the church and you, you've got the controversy of one part or two part harmony or then three part and that's the tritone that's the devil's tone i mean there, there's all we have this has been going on for the entire history of the church and quite frankly i think it's one of satan's biggest ways to get us distracted and derailed from the, from the mission that is before us that being said we as leaders still have to deal with it um, because your people are where they are and you have to lead them from where they are yeah, so let's let's talk about some of the distinctions. As I think about the folks who are listening and the things that they're struggling with, and I mentioned this to you guys, and I don't know that I've convinced you or not, but I think uh, the single greatest tension in the church today is not music, though I do think that's certainly hot, and, and I think that's the one that's more visibly problematic. And I think people can quickly and, and you know viscerally put their finger on that as a problem. And, and let me just say, I do think the reason for that to some degree, and I think I may have mentioned this on a previous show, is that uh, I think those of us who lead the church, we tend to think of faith. I think politics is the same way, by the way. I think we tend to think of faith and politics as intellectual pursuits, those of us who are leading. And so we make our case, we share our data, we point to scripture, and we think, okay, everybody's going to run there. And we forget that all both faith and politics are generally, for the average person, an emotional pursuit. Um, and, and when you win the heart, then you can sort of make the intellectual case and, and they go there. And I, again, I'm not trying to div- divorce the two and say that you don't have to think through your faith at all. But I think for most people, faith is a feeling, uh, you know, a feeling topic. And so when you go into a church and try and navigate music, for instance, or you try and navigate s- service time changes, Sam, or you redecorate the, you know, the sanctuary, or you want to build a new one and move away from this. My kids were bar- were married there. My my son was baptized there. I you know I met my wife there. There's emotion that's connected with that, and music maybe is the most one of the most emotional outlets we have. And so changing music, we need to understand. While oftentimes pastors and leaders are thinking from a missiology perspective, well we can reach more people if we think through our music. Their people are thinking through an emotional perspective. This hurts me when you change this because I have an emotional connection with that music. And so it's not that people are selfish. I mean, there may be that. It's not that people are just angry or bitter. It's that this is emotionally difficult. So I do think music is there. I think it's more visceral. I think for leaders, the bigger issue is we need to think through preaching. And and let me kind of make the case. I think there are three distinct models for preaching in the conservative evangelical church, right? I think you've got maybe the greatest generation model, which would have been expository-ish, maybe expository thematic, 25, 30-minute sermons, um, text-driven. You move from that to sort of baby boomers, uh, which grew of age during the church growth era, and the church growth era became very thematic, topical, and um, sort of shorter sermons, maybe 20 to 30 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes. Sometimes they're jokingly referred to as sermonettes. They'll often sort of be point-driven, six steps to a happy marriage, five steps to raise your children well. Here's four ways to fi- you know, manage your finances with integrity. All good topics, but just a definitely a different model of doing that. We think today of, of you know, Rick Warner or Andy Stanley or Bill Hybels as, as folks who have handled that really well. And then you have the the Gen X 
and then certainly the millennial generation. And there is some of that topical thematic that's been very successful in our generations as well. But you do have a, a move back towards theologically rich, you know, preaching, expository preaching is making a huge recovery, you know, and in, in, in culture right now. And, uh, I mean, Josh, you mentioned on our last show, I think, Matt Chandler and how much you like him. Chandler likes to say, I get up and I yell at my people for 45 minutes. You know, he'll often describe his preaching that way. And so it'll be 45, 50 minutes long, theological language, expository preaching. When you have these three very distinct styles, and I, and I believe me, these are not, I don't mean to say these are neatly defined categories that stand apart from each other. I think they bleed across the cultures and generations. But I think you have these three distinct models. When you walk into a church that's established and you have older and younger in the church, and their, their expectation of what good preaching looks and sounds like is not just limited to what you wear. Do you wear a tie or not? It's how mm-hmm. you deliver a message, how your application is understood, and how you engage with the text. And so you could preach in such a way that your 60-year-old crowd resonates with and loves and your 25-year-olds are saying, that doesn't mean anything to me. And mm-hmm. so I, I think maybe the most difficult worship topic in the established church right now is how do you preach well in such a way that you can engage senior adults while engaging 20-year-olds at the same time? Uh, Sam, how, how have you th- thought through that, and how have you engaged in that sort of holistic preaching in your own in- environment? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I do is, uh, one, I don't try to fight my own personality in the pulpit. You know, I, I very much try to preach in a way that is is me, um, and and I'm I, you know I hate to say things like true to yourself and all that because it sounds so cliche. Listen and to your stupid. heart, Sam. Yeah, yeah. Follow your heart, which is like the dumbest advice anyone can give anyone. Because <laughs> um, your heart is depraved. Um, but you know, I I, 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 try, I try to I try, I try to to my own language and my own style. So I'm a millennial. When I when I I've been of the first millennial pastor of a few churches and I had to I learned after a couple of them I was like I would tell the search committee I'm a millennial and that means my language is going to sound a little different in the pulpit and and I just was upfront about it so and I'm kind of an odd dude anyway so I you know I, I let them I, I let everyone know these are my foibles these are kind of who I am and, and I don't fight my own personality um, so my style is my style um, but what I do try to to accomplish every week, is with my illustrations, I try to connect with different generations. So some weeks I'm, I'm, I'm talking about social media and hashtags and all sorts of things that are engaging to not just millennials but Gen Z. Don't forget about you know, That's right. the children of the millennials who are and Gen quite Z. different. And, yeah. and becoming, what, 17, 18 years old right now, right? In the, the in oldest the are, yeah, Gen Z. yeah, 16, 17 years old right now. Yeah. They think very differently than millennials. So, but then I'll also – go back to the 1960s and give historical illustrations for the baby boomers and then I'll go back to the 1950s and 40s so that um, you know our, our seniors can can relate so my style is my style um, I'm not gifted enough to preach in four or five different styles so it, it just it just is the way that it is but I do try hard to think okay you know it's been a couple weeks since I've used a historical example that might connect with our older generation. And so I, I very intentionally go seek those illustrations out so that, um, one, our younger people can know history you know, <laughs> and how it connects to the Bible. That's important. Um, but also so I can just talk the language of those that are, that are a little older through, through things that they felt and that they know and that they actually 
remember. And so it's just a way for me to 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 connect with them at, at, a, at a at a at a certain level, I guess. Josh, what are you doing as you preach in the context of you know your church to make sure that you're preaching in a way that's applicable cross generationally? I will say that for us, I, I come. I think you're right on this because. The struggles that I, I had. Want to record that for just a second, by the way. I think you're right I, on this. That Josh, you're going to make that. Micah, you're going to make that your right. ringtone. That's my text every time from phone now rings. On. It's Josh saying <laughs> when, when I call, Micah, you're right. Um, so, I because one of the struggles that we had being such, I was 28 when I took an established, uh, predominantly older church, and I didn't realize it was such a deal until one of them pointed it out to me. A lot of illustrations for millennials. And uh, for the sort are are personal. They are personal, and they are um, what's the word where you kind of make fun of yourself? Self-deprecating. Um, yeah, deprecating. You and so that's really weird uh, to the older generation because I what was it, John Acuff or somebody tweeted out just yesterday something about an older style of leadership. I can't show my flaws, or they won't listen to me. The newer style of leadership, I have to show my flaws or they won't listen to me. And so you're constantly in this sort of tension. And I, so I didn't I, I didn't change that, though. That was an issue. The other issue was the way you wrap the thing up. That becomes a big problem. Are you giving a repeat after me, close your eyes, prayer? Are you calling every sermon? Are you calling people to respond to the gospel in a direct, like, salvific way, not just sort of like, this is how the gospel bears on this conversation. So those were two challenges. In fact, I remember one of the times I got in the most trouble was this woman accused me of not giving the gospel for any of my sermons. And I said, I just, just today, I gave the gospel and called people to, to respond. And she said, yeah, but you did not use the word repent. And I said, right, but I used the word turn, and she said, yeah, but that's not the same. And I said, well, kind of literally it is the same. And so <laughs> we had that conversation. So my instead of changing any of that, the way I kind of address a lot of those sort of is I just acknowledge it. So sometimes I'll say, uh, you know, this, this fleshes out a lot. So I preached on Acts um, and the people of Athens and the strangers that lived in the land were constantly given to sharing or hearing something new. And I expressed that like through Twitter. And I said, this is just an obsession. Like you're, you're drinking from a fire hydrant of giving or sharing something new. You don't really care what it says. You just want to be the one to break it. And I talked about Twitter. And then I said, and then for those of you who don't have Twitter, you know, don't. Don't worry about it. Or, you know, those sort of things because it's just sort of this thing. Or I'll acknowledge, I'll say, there's some people that just don't relate to this because you were a different generation or you dressed differently at that point or something like this. The point really is this. And then I'll just kind of give the point directly. And I think that sort of relates uh, to people. But just acknowledging, look, I'm a millennial. I'm talking to you guys. And as a millennial, I say this. So I'll say that phrase, as a millennial or as a 34-year-old, this is the way I see the world, which is not the same as everybody else. So, Micah, particularly with you, I mean, we have different service styles. I'm curious, do you have a generational divide in your church with, you know, you've got one style over another, you've got different times. I mean, is it, are, are you segmented in any sort of way? Um, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think every church is going to have some sort of generational tension. I, I don't know, We, you know, I mean, I've been here about four months, and so I haven't been the pastor here long. 
and so my perspective is limited. But I don't really see a generational fight in our church. There doesn't appear to be any battle. I'll tell you, I told people when I came here, this is the healthiest church I've ever seen a new pastor walk into. And so, I mean, it's in a really good place. We're also, we also have the benefit of having grown by about 150% over the last seven years. And so 65% of our people are new in the last seven years, which makes us a large established church without some of the same characteristics of many other large established churches. Um, And so we have two services, two very distinct styles. I wear a suit and tie in two of our services, or we have two venues with two very distinct styles. I, I wear a suit and tie in two of our services and I wear jeans and button-down shirt or a t-shirt in three of the the other three services. But both services are cross-generational. Um, we we had an amazing weekend this past weekend uh, when we were recording this this episode. We had, between our five services, I think we had over a, a right in the ballpark of 100 people at the altar meeting with pastors, praying. I mean, it was just a really, really cool. And by the way, I do an altar call. And we have a, a sort of a next steps area where we encourage people to go back to so they can choose either or. They can come down and s- see a pastor during an invitation response time. Or if that's you know terrifying to them and, and generationally and culturally, that would be difficult. We have a next steps area behind at, at the end of each service where they can go to sort of casually and in a relational way talk to a pastor. So we do a both and approach. We don't, we don't do – in fact, most things that we do in the church, to be honest with you, are a both and approach. I feel like far Which too often – Which is not a bad way to do it. No, I, I think mean, it's that's a really great established church. Yeah. I think both and is a great plan rather mm-hmm. than an either-or option. <clears throat> so, Sam, I don't know that we have a generational war as much as there is some generational tension. But I, what I try and do is have a very intentional plan – um, that involves both being heavily relational with our senior adults, so with our older folks. So I've started a plan, uh, even though there's way more than I'll ever be able to get to, I started a plan starting with our oldest, our oldest senior adults, and I just one or two homes a week I visit, and that's one, to show them that I love them, two, to get to know them better, and three, I want them to know, I want them to say to other people in their, you know, and we call them life groups, but Sunday school life groups, I want them talking about the fact that the pastor's coming to visit them, right? So that, that's a good rumor that gets around the church. But then when it comes to our younger adults, I'm, I'm then engaging with them and relating to them around things that I naturally relate to with my kids. I mean, because I don't have to work to relate to 35-year-olds, uh, you know, because that's who, I mean, I'm, I'm a little older than that, but that's generally my age group. I'm the one non-millennial on, the, on this podcast. And you're, you're fighting your middle age. You're fighting yeah. it. I told my wife this week, my birthday, you know, we're recording this in late October. My birthday's tomorrow. And I, I, I literally, if, if I live to be the average American male lifespan, I mean, life, you know, yeah, span of life, then tomorrow on my birthday will be the halfway point of my life, which mm. is a little bit Congratulations. Do, do we I, need to stop? Do we need to stop and sing "Happy Birthday" and have no, you put a little really, money in no, the I'm orphan gonna, care? No. I'm not going to do that. But so, I, I would say I think it takes a both and approach. And the one thing I'll say, Sam, and then we'll, we'll jump back to you. When it comes to preaching, and I'm, I may be a little unique this way, I don't plan any. I shouldn't say any. I plan nearly. Now, how do I want to say this? I plan very, very few illustrations in my message. I write almost no illustrations in my notes. I wrote. I write commentary. You know, my points, my commentary. For one, I'm trying to force my sermons to be um, intentional and propositional, but at the same time, I want them to be very sort of sort of story-driven in terms of just how I share them. And so I don't have tons of points and subpoints anymore when I write sermons. Some of my old sermons used to be that way. I've limited the number of po- primary points I have in my sermons. I try and drive one propositional truth home with every message. And then <clears throat> illustrations are almost always, for me, personal and on the fly. 
And um, kind of going back to John's, uh, to Josh's point, and uh, I've found that those have been the most effective because I found that personal illustrations, and I've actually found the opposite of you, Josh. For me, the older and younger have all resonated with um, transparency, self-deprecation, willingness to laugh, you know, laugh at myself, and and personal stories. Um, they've resonated with those well. But I try and use personal stories that grandparents all the way down to teenagers can resonate with. So I try and vary those personal stories. But to me, that's been one of the best methods of being able to communicate well. So Sam, I know you had something you were going to say. Yeah, for those of you who are wondering, is it harder now? Are are the worship wars worse? Is it it harder um, to reach across generations? Because let's just admit, there is a bit of a generational divide in most churches with worship wars. There's at least generational tension. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. yes, yeah. You might not have an all-out war, sure. but you you may have tensions. Um, and I, I would make the argument that yes, it is harder now than it has ever been before. And here's the reason: in 1900, the average lifespan of an infant was about 46 for a male, 48 for a female. Today, the average lifespan for an infant is 74 for a male and 80 for a female. So back in the day. You know, hundred years ago, you only had two generations in the church. So the pastor, the the, the style, everything that was going on, just had to relate to to two generations. Yes. Today, you're having to relate sometimes to five generations in the church, and it's very hard to. It, it was. It's much easier to bridge the gap between two generations than it is five generations. So I I would make the argument that that it is harder, and that's part of the reason that we've perhaps had some more intense worship wars in the past. 30 years than say you may have had a hundred years ago. And remember and this, pati- let me say this too real quick. Not only are there more generations in the church, Sam, the generations are more distinct than they used to be. Mm-hmm. So in 1900s, you might have in 1900, you might have two generations in your church, even in 1950. So Nathan Finn did a fast, uh, you know, Dr. Nathan Finn, the Dean of the school of theology at union university did a fascinating little study a while back on how churches were predominantly monolithic you know, you could go to a denominational church anywhere in the country in 1950, and it would basically be the same songs, the same sanctuary layout, the same order of service, <clears throat> excuse me, and the same denominational calendar. So just from 1950 until now, you know, what's that, 66 years, uh, there has been a radical shift in the distinctions between the generations and the expectation that each generation has that its needs, you know, would be met, and and I think there are some sociological and cultural reasons why we've become increasingly more more demanding with our expectation that our specific needs be met. Josh, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to point out something very similar. In 1900, if you have two generations, that's my parents and that's me. Uh, also, even up to the 50s, a lot sooner, the generations um, interacted all week long. And now what you have is very not only distinct characteristics of the generations, but they literally do not ever come in contact with other people to the point like we're the first generation growing up millennials where we're predominantly from broken homes. And so you may not even relate to both of your parents. You sure don't relate to a lot of your grandparents. And so I didn't even really know either set of my grandparents. And so when you have that uh, and you're forced to – go together. Besides that, that you have so many choices with radio stations and podcasting preachers and that sort of stuff where you can get all week exactly what it is that you want for your generation built for you. Then you go into one room and now we're all supposed to like lay down our preferences with everything else in our world telling us 
the whole thing's about my preference. And so it really creates a lot of problems that I don't think people really see through why they're so mad or hurt or, you know, whatever it is. They don't understand why they're dealing with those feelings. And if, if and, I can piggyback on that, Josh, I think the key is – I think you've, you've hit on it. I think the key is relationship development. If you can get cross-generational relationship buy-in, you can mitigate significant mm-hmm. amount of this. A great example, my grandfather, who is no longer living, was a was a Texan from Wichita Falls, Southern Baptist. Amen. Yeah, Southern Baptist, and uh, went into the military, retired from the Air Force. You know, very strict. He liked guys to look clean cut, short hair, no earrings, you know, tattoos, any of those sort of things. He, his pastor showed up on a Wednesday night without a tie one time. He said, if you do that again, I'm going to help you find a new place to serve. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that was just sort of him. And uh, until I, I've got a cousin who, you know, tattoos, earrings, the whole nine yards. And I watched him walk in the house one day and my grandfather bounds up out of his big chair, picks him up and bear hugs him and puts him down. Uh, what's the difference, right? The difference between his response, his visceral response to, to, to guys. And, and my grandfather was a man's man, sort of John Wayne. That's who he was. He ripped an earring out of a guy's ear one time. <laughs> back when nice. That. Seriously. Nice. That Seriously. is, I love John Wayne. And the guy said, like, thank you. Like yeah, well, guy. the guy was, the guy was his, uh, he was the guy's uh, superior in the military. So the guy had to say, yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you. But, um, what, what's, what's the difference between the visceral reaction to the one guy and then the affection toward my, my cousin, his grandson? The difference is relationship, right? We have a culture and we have, a, we, have a chur- we have churches apart or void of cross-generational relationship. Therefore, wars are exacerbated. These worship wars are exacerbated because of that. I'm right. just, I'm just th- I've got a mental image of someone ripping an earring out of yeah. some other guy's ear. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was him. All right, Josh, think, we, we've gone over time for this episode, but this has been oh, a fun no. one. It's been a good topic. Why don't you close this out? Tell us how we can connect, uh, how folks can connect with us as we move from week to week. As always, friends, help us get the word out. Follow us on Twitter at EST Church. Make sure, make sure, make sure that you are following us on uh, iTunes, that you've subscribed, that you rate and review. Hey, we appreciate you subscribing, but we really need you to go in there and rate and review. Even if you don't use iTunes as your main podcasting uh, source, Go ahead and jump in there and rate and review us. We love you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.